Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasida from NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, also from NHS Somerset. And Peter, you're our mental health lead uh, at NHS Somerset, and you've kindly agreed to be our guest today. And the topic is treating depression. And I think it's a topic that we're revisiting that we looked at some couple of years ago. So please take it away and tell us about it. Thank you. Yes, Andrew. And uh, th- things change, don't they? So there have been some some new developments in the last couple of years around treating depression, um, s- some new thoughts about the tablets that we use. And and so I think it is worth uh, revisiting. It's Depression is, is probably the one of the worst conditions that you can, can get. They did a trial where they asked people who had both depression and cancer uh, which was worse. And, and most people said that depression was worse than cancer. So it's an absolutely devastating illness. How interesting, Peter. Now, words change their meanings over years, and the word depression has changed its meaning over the last 20 years since since we were in medical school. That's making us much younger than perhaps we are. But anyway, um, what is depression and how do we distinguish it from normal sadness? That's a really good question. And, and it can be very, very difficult, particularly we've had episodes, haven't we, on bereavement. Now, most people who are bereaved will go through a state that's very much like depression. And and at what point do you say, no, this is pathology or this is a, a normal reaction to something really sad happening in your life? So there are definitions. They're a bit arbitrary. It's Depression is really where you have this ongoing sadness and a lack of pleasure in anything at all. We call it anhedonia, but it's where things that you would normally take enjoyment from, uh, you just don't get pleasure from at all. Uh, and some people will get sleep disturbance. Classically, it's early morning waking, but it can be difficulty getting to sleep. They'll often have tiredness and apathy. Um, and, and very often they'll get other things as well. Older people, for instance, will often get physical symptoms uh, rather than uh, the the sort of classic things that we think of in, in younger people. Um, but depression really is this ongoing sadness and lack of pleasure in anything. Thank you. And how about appetite and uh, and weight? Is that relevant at all? Yeah. So a lot of people will find that they just don't have any appetite for anything. So they may lose weight. Uh, conversely, because you don't feel like doing anything a lot of people will will just stay around not moving uh, and so in some people their weight will go up but that tends to be in more severe cases you get this uh this withdrawal from the world thank you and there's one last term which is a bit bit technical and perhaps you could unpack it for us um retardation what does that mean and is that relevant yeah so that's what I was starting to describe where you you have this um, everything is slowed down and, uh, and and blunted, and you're not able to be enthusiastic about anything. So, so people will will often appear withdrawn and slow. Now, that can be tricky for us as diagnosticians, can't it? Because you see similar things, for instance, with an underactive thyroid, uh, that can cause that, and you also get it in early d- dementia, where people will tend to withdraw. So, it's not quite straightforward. No, and in, and Parkinson's as well. And I, I remember treating a chap for Parkinson's, and I thought he was depressed to start with because his facial changes were so marked, and he was so slow and talk and talking slowly. But actually, his diagnosis was 
was Parkinson's. And you mentioned dementia, and of course, early depression or depression can mimic dementia, and dementia can mimic depression, and the two can coexist. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's quite right. It, it's quite a complex thing. But those people who have severe d- depression will know about it. Um, it does tend to be a recurrent thing. Uh, but often it, it's, it sneaks up on you very gradually. So people aren't aware that they're slipping back into this this bad state. Thank you. Um, how long do you have to have a low mood for for it to be obvious that it is depression? Is it something that we have for three or four days or a week or so, or is it a bit longer? No, it, it's longer. So I think TSM says five weeks is the uh, is that definition. But other other people say different things. But it's certainly you know six weeks or so, a couple of months before you would really start labelling it depression. Thank you. And what different types of depression exist, Peter? Well, you talk about what we were taught uh, as as medical students, and, and we were taught neurotic and psychotic depression, weren't we, uh, as the two labels. Um, and, and those terms really have fallen away. So people tend to now talk about mild to moderate, moderate to severe, and then bipolar disease, which is a a variant of depression, but it that's a, a slightly different one, which probably is is too much of a topic by itself to go into in, in great detail, but that very much has a, a, a biological term. But in general, it reflects the fact that depression is brought on by many things, as so many diseases. So some of it is due to adverse events, some of it due to early trauma, some of it's due to genetic makeup. And some of it is what just happens to happen. So it could be it could be reactive to circumstances or it could be endogenous to use a that's couple right. of other terms that used to be used. Yes. And, and that's really equivalent to to the old neurotic and psychotic thing. Where So the endogenous depression, the idea is that we haven't had anything obvious to trigger it. It's just something in us that uh, we're prone to. And there are theories about that, the, the serotonin hypothesis. Uh, that some people have low serotonin levels is one, though that's that's run into a bit of a sticky patch in the last couple of years. Interesting. Thank you. We'll come to severe depression in a moment, but what are the most effective treatments for mild to moderate depression? Well, this is something where NICE have been very helpful. The National Institute for Clinical Excellence uh, are a, a body that, although they're, they can be criticised for some of the things they do, they do weigh the evidence and look at the evidence base for the the different treatments and they've come out very firmly saying that for for mild depression you should absolutely be looking at one of the talking therapies uh, along with things like uh, self-guided help meditation exercise all the things we talk about every week on these podcasts don't we Andrew Uh, and that you shouldn't be looking for medication as a quick fix and I can maybe go into a little bit more why uh, we shouldn't rush to medication. I think it would be very helpful and also to talk about um, CBT a little bit and talking therapies. Yes. So CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, we, we've gone into uh, before. And if people are interested, we've done a, a whole episode, I think, on talking therapies, haven't we? So the idea is that for some of us, whether it's because of bad things happening or whether it's because of our, our chemical tendency in the brain, we tend to to do the opposite of rose-tinted spectacles. We tend to look on the, the black side of things. 
and that when we do that, it reinforces itself. And they give an example with CBT of somebody who is walking along the road, they see a good friend on the other, other side of the road, wave at them, and they don't respond. Now, some people will say, oh, they didn't see me and just carry on their own, own way and not worry about it. Others might think, oh, dear, is there something wrong with them? I, I need to go and check that they're all right, because normally they would respond to me. And some people would, would think, I must have done something terrible to upset them, and they don't want to talk to me, and, and they would get really upset by those. Now, all of those reactions are valid, but they can't all be right. And with CBT, the idea is that people who are depressed tend to look towards the negative explanation of things, and that if you can get their brains to 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 go around more positive circles, that will reinforce itself. Interesting. That's most helpful. Thank you. How about we talk about lifestyle? Um, how how important are things like sleep and exercise and the food and nutrition we eat and, and things like that? Is that all a bit sort of fuddy-duddy and woo-woo, or is there an evidence base for some of these things? There's absolutely an evidence base. And uh, <laughs> you know, Andrew, and, and regular listeners will know that I'm I'm very much into scientific evidence bases. And that's come out increasingly in the last few years, the importance of lifestyle. So we know, for instance, that exercise is as effective as medication in terms of combating both anxiety and depression. There's some very interesting study possibly linked to microbiome. We're, that That's still developing. We're not sure how important that is. But there's interesting studies that inflammation in the brain seems to make us more vulnerable to depression and anxiety and even things like schizophrenia, for instance. And we know that diet affects inflammation. So if we have a lot of uh, processed food, if we have a lot of high sugar foods, uh, that tends to be more pro-inflammatory. Whereas if we have a, a Mediterranean diet with olive oil, fresh fruit and veg, that's anti-inflammatory. And that seems to be very helpful. And there seems to be a particular problem that if we become obese, which a lot of us are in this country and, and throughout the, the world, of course, um, that seems to also make us more prone to depression. Thank you. That's very helpful. So that's mild to moderate depression. Thinking about severe depression. So what would severe depression look like? Well, se severe depression, again, these things aren't well defined. So you, you, you can ask people questions. We've got different scores that we use day to day, haven't we, Andrew? And you can ask people this, this checklist of symptoms. And if they have more than a certain number, then we put them into the severe depression category. Um, and you, you'll you be familiar with this. You might even be able to advise people which, uh, which scores they could look up if they're interested. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. So the GAD7, the General Anxiety Disorder 7, and the PHQ9, uh, and I've forgotten what PHQ stands for, something ho patient hospital questionnaire. Um, yes. I think nine uh, score, one scores out of 21 and the other scores out of 27. And they ask you how you've been on a number of parameters over the last last two weeks. Although, do you mind me just saying they can catch you out? Uh, no, and, absolutely not. No, that's I'm just thinking of, uh, of, 
of somebody I saw in my work for practitioner health who was having difficulties in their in their life. They're very, they've given permission for their stories to be the story to be shared, and their PHQ and GAD nine, uh, PHQ nine and GAD seven scores would have put them in the severe anxiety and depression score, um, and that had been persistent for a couple of months. However, with this person, I unpacked their beverage history. And it appeared that with four strong coffees, three strong teas, and two Red Bulls, there was probably about 400 milligrams of legalized upper of ca of caffeine. I was about to say cannabis. Of caffeine going in. Cannabis was nowhere near this person. Um, of going in uh, on a daily basis, counteracted by 30 units of legalized downer per week. And those were enough, together with working too hard, to put this person the wrong side of the stress performance curve and to look like they had severe, moderately, certainly moderately severe depression uh, and anxiety. And within a few days of stopping both of those, they were normal. So I would just sort of caution against us, us leaping to a diagnosis and treatment before thinking about some of the lifestyle factors uh, and, and the fact that a questionnaire as a snapshot must be taken in context with one's clinical um, acumen and clinical assessment of a situation. Absolutely. that That's a brilliant illustration, Andrew. Uh, you asked the question, uh, is lifestyle important? And, and you've answered it very, very well with, with that story. And it's something I've, I've certainly seen many times uh, as a GP, particularly long distance lorry drivers, I think, who will take things like Red Bull or uh, caffeine tablets, um, which are they're sold as energy drinks, aren't they? They're not yes. stimulants. And yes. so you get a rebound afterwards. Uh, yes. So it, it can become really easy to slip into that. And then and alcohol, we which I pres presume is the downer you meant. Absolutely. Again, it was the legalized downer. And, and, um, um, of course, some some of the illicit drugs we know that uh, cocaine, um, which gives people an upper, um, actually gives you a tremendous downer afterwards. You know, deep depressions afterwards, which is not depression. It's it's just a reactive state to all your neurochemicals being burnt off. There's not a lot yes. left. Yes, absolutely. So um, so going back to severe depression, it 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 looks like retardation it looks like weight loss it looks like appetite it looks like just a persistent very low mood and and possibly thoughts of 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 of, of life not being worth living yes absolutely and i think it's worth just picking up what you said about the alcohol because a, a lot of people with mental distress whether it's anxiety or depression or, or something else will look to alcohol as a way of blunting their symptoms which it does temporarily but like everything else it seems when you you flood the system with something some external chemical then your body thinks oh good i don't have to produce these chemicals myself and it switches off so you you get a a reaction to that as well unfortunately alcohol tends to make depression much worse in the long term indeed indeed um so um, I'd just like to sort of mention one other aspect of severe depression. Well, we'll I, I'd like to mention psychotic depression, but can we talk about the treatments for severe depression and what you would recommend, um, not including psychotic depression? Yes. So um, there you are thinking in terms of medication. Um, but again, NICE has said that these should be used in conjunction with talking therapies. So it's not just reach for a prescription, put a person on a pill, 
and they'll they'll get better. It's it's much more complex than that. Um, it, for mild depression, going back to that, even without treatment, people will often get better. Um, about 50 percent to fifty five percent of people, younger people with mild depression, will actually uh, lose that depression within twelve months without any intervention at all. So it is something that naturally comes and goes. But where you're thinking of uh, antidepressants, uh, the ones we've got now are not perfect. They tend to be the SSRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and they're safer than the ones that we used to have, the uh, tricyclics and monoamine oxidase inhibitors and so on, that, that had a lot of side effects. But they do have their problems. They take about a fortnight to, to kick in. They actually slightly increase the risk of suicide in the initial few weeks that people are taking them. And increasingly, we recognize that they cause emotional blunting and that there are withdrawal effects, which used, it used to be said they, they weren't addictive, but we're increasingly recognizing that quite a lot of people now will, will get withdrawal on, on any of the antidepressants. So tell me about emotional blunting please or tell us about emotional blunting and and also what the withdrawal effects might look like so emotional blunting it's really as though you're taking painkillers for the brain it, it's the equivalent of of taking a strong painkiller uh in that it reduces your distress and your depression and your black thoughts but it also reduces the happy thoughts and the highs. So a lot of people are describing uh, that when they're on the, this medication, they they just don't feel emotion to the same extent. And, and some people will actually refuse medication because of that, um, because they say it takes away the, the pleasure as, as well as the pain. And that's recognized to be very, very common and sometimes to persist after people have stopped taking the medication. Interesting. And um, we know about the withdrawal uh, symptoms that people got, get from diazepam and and uh, the the other benzodiazepines. But as you say, it was always said that the uh, SSRIs, the serotonin uh, medication, didn't cause that. But what sort of what sort of symptoms might people get as withdrawal um, phenomena? Yeah. So they're not technically they're not addictive in that you don't crave more and take more, and in, in the way that happens with the the benzodiazepines like diazepam. Um, but yes, a, a proportion of people will get often just mild anxiety uh, for a couple of weeks after stopping medication. For some people, it's more severe and it can go a lot longer. So the advice now is that anybody who's been on these drugs for a significant length of time shouldn't just be suddenly stopped as we used to do, but they need to be tapered off gradually to reduce this risk. And it seems to relate to the dose that you've been on and the length of time you've been on them. Very interesting. And do they all have the same sort of um, withdrawal effects profile and, and liability, or are some, as it were, open inverted commas, safer than others? We we know that paroxetine was was found to have in its in the first two weeks of of taking it. Uh, that often motivation would come back before mood was raised. And in fact, that's a problem potentially with all antidepressants. The danger is that motivation comes back when the mood is still very low. And so people may be 
may make unfortunate decisions or may make them fi- find themselves uh, thinking, even with suicidal thinking, um, which has more push behind it. Um, That's right. I, th- I think you're absolutely right, Andrew. There's There's been a, a school of thought that says that it, it makes people feel suicidal. But I, I think if you unpick it, it you're, you're absolutely right that it's more that their suicidal thoughts don't start to lift, but they have a bit more motivation. You you don't get the the retardation that you talked about earlier. So you're you're more likely to actually take action on it. There is a difference between the the different drugs, mainly based on their half life. So some are very quick acting uh, and can be tapered off more quickly, uh, like fluoxetine. But it seems to be an issue with all the the antidepressants that we know about. Um, maybe worth mentioning, as you've touched on uh, the risk of suicide, that this seems to be a particular issue in younger people. So that uh, if we're prescribing to under 25s, for instance, we we should see them more regularly because they do seem to be more at risk of self-harm. And the other thing with anybody with a, with a mental health issue is that, and also, Peter, you and I, all of us should complete a safety plan. And uh, we did a podcast on this with the wonderful Alice Cole King from North Wales recently, which is about safety planning. And that's on the, the, the web address is www.stayingsafe.net. And just like we wear safety belts when we drive cars, we should all have a safety plan um, and so that we can help ourselves when, there's a, when we find ourselves in crisis. Absolutely. Yes. No, completely agree. And I point people to that episode if they're interested. Could I just pick up on severe depression with psychotic features, by which I mean delusions, which is a fixed, incorrect belief, delusions of nihilism, that is, that the world's going to end, delusions of guilt, that things have happened and I am guilty of them, uh, and delusions, um, nihilism, guilt, and oh, what's the third one? Can you remember? There are three sorts of delusions, nihilism, uh, guilt, Ill- and... Illness, convinced yes. that they've got an illness. Absolutely. It's the classic one. Absolutely. So if people have got these severe delusions, I mean, certainly they need treatment. Would there be a case sometimes for ECT in in, in what is called a psychotic depression? Yes, definitely. Um, so uh, ECT, it, we don't know how it works. Uh, it sounds barbaric, doesn't it? Electroconvulsive therapy. You're basically putting a, a lot of electricity through somebody's brain. Uh, now they're sedated, so they don't know about it. And it has its own set of problems, in particular memory loss after ECT. But for people who have treatment-resistant depression, in other words, who've been put on the standard medication and haven't responded to it, there is still a place for things like ECT. and. For that group, they're they're now looking at other newer options. There's been a lot of noise in the the press recently, hasn't there, about psilocybin and hallucinogens and even uh, things like ketamine. And um, maybe more gently, there's a a, a thing, uh, external uh, cranial stimulation, where you you wear a cap and that gives you a a much gentler electrical uh, stimulation than ECT does. Uh, so, So that's all being evaluated because... This treatment-resistant group, they they suffer hugely. It's a horrible thing to have, and they are at high risk of, of, of self-harm or suicide. 
Absolutely. If you were if you got depression in the 1930s, you had a before there were any effective treatments, you had a very high risk of of, of tragically dying. Um, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, going back to the lifestyle things, uh, you you've mentioned exercise, um, and you know we know it's one of the five ways to well-being to move our muscles. Perhaps being the biggest organ in the uh, in the body, although the dermatologist would probably say it's the skin. Um, <laughs> Does exercise really work? And if it does work, how does it work? Right. And the gastroenterologist would probably say it was the gut, wouldn't they? And the <laughs> Indeed. Microbiome. Indeed. Um, so unequivocally, it does work. And it's a particularly difficult thing uh, if you are depressed, because as we've said, you get this retardation. Everything is hard work. It's an effort just getting up in the morning. So the temptation is just to stay in bed or or mope around the house and not do anything. So really pushing yourself to do exercise, even though you don't feel like it, is really important in depression. As to why it works, um, there are lots of theories, and I don't think we've got an absolute, this is definitely the mechanism by which it works. There, there are lots of different ideas about it. You you probably got more than me, Andrew. What what? How do you think it works? Um. I don't know, Peter, but I think it works on multiple levels. I think if we're exercising in nature, whether it's moderate exercise or um, pretty fierce exercise, we are connecting with nature. Fierce is probably not the right word to use for exercise unless you're fencing or or using martial arts. I know I'm speaking to a black belt and, and one at the moment, but, uh, <laughs> but um, I, I think there's also something about the production of adrenaline and other endorphins which uh come about during exercise and after exercise and i certainly remember a very nice doctor who i was looking about after who actually was depressed and needed an ssri but his self-medication had been um, cycling 15 miles a day to get the get the effort you know to, sorry to get the exercise and the sort of the runner's high or the, uh, the the athlete's high from that and that had sort of worked for him to a certain extent of self-medication but but he, he really did benefit from an ssri in in this case and just transformed in mood and you mentioned my black belt uh, i would put in a plug for martial arts i think they are a fantastic way of getting exercise because you do it without noticing that you're doing it it's very hard work. Freestyle fighting is one of the most exhausting things that you can do. Um, but you're not saying I will exercise. You're you're just in the moment and you're focused on that. So any difficult thoughts you've got, any uh, hamster wheel thoughts that are going round and round in your head, you have to break out of that. Otherwise, you get hit on the nose. Uh, so it's a really good way of focusing the mind and giving you that vigorous workout. So I, I would encourage anyone who's interested to take up martial arts. You're never too old. Um, I started way too late because I went with my children. They lost interest and I carried on and after 15 years got a black belt. But it, it's one of the best things I've done. Interesting. So um, summing up, if if we think that we are depressed or if we notice a family member is off colour and off mood and it's persisting for more than a, than a, than a short, well, more than a few weeks or certainly, certainly more than a period of time, um, what's the first step? I would say do the, the lifestyle things that we discussed, get more exercise, try and uh, break into these these negative thoughts uh, get out in nature all of those sort of things be more sociable even though it's hard work 
after that, the next thing is either go to your GP, um, but don't expect tablets. Or in every part of the country now, we can re uh, self-refer for talking therapies and get CBT. So uh, look up your local talking therapies, self-refer, uh, or go to your GP. Peter, that's a fantastic summary of treating depression uh, and revisiting it and updating us on on advances and uh, new nice guidance and looking at it. And that's really inspiring. Thank you very, very much indeed for helping us on that. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everyone, for listening and go well. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresider, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Holmes Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board.